uh, earlier this week as I was thinking about this sermon, I was envisioning myself preaching with tropical storm force winds blowing out there and like 10 of you here. And I'm so glad that's not happening. So praise God for a sunny day, but let's continue to pray for uh, the Bahamas uh, who, are, who are getting hit right now and um, for that storm to go out and not affect anyone else. Um, another thing, another news, I, Paul has no idea about this, but I was this morning, I was hoping that we would sing that song, Praise the Name of the Lord Our God. And I was, it was going through my head this morning, I was like, man, we haven't even talked about this, but maybe we'll sing it. And we did, so awesome. I love the way God works uh, through people in, in the worship service, because this morning we are going to talk about praise, as we talk about the gospel going up. Uh, this week I was looking through my son Isaac's preschool papers. He's a three-year-old at our preschool, and uh, he has Miss Latasha, who loves to sing. And uh, one of the papers she sent home said, in bold print, we will sing praises to our God. And every morning when they go in there, they are singing praises to God. And she says, this is because singing praises to God is one of the best ways for us to learn how to praise God and learn appreciation and thankfulness towards God. And I love, I love that our preschool kids do that. It's amazing. And that is what we're going to talk about this morning, the gospel going up. Uh, the first week we talked about evangelism, how the gospel goes out. Last week it was heart change. What does the gospel do when, when it goes into our hearts and our lives? This morning we're going to talk about worship. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 96 uh, and, and some other passages later on, but we'll start here in Psalm 96 verses 1 through 6. It says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise His name. Proclaim His salvation day after day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nation are idols. For the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and glory are in His sanctuary. So we see, we see a lot here about worship, and the first thing we see is that only God is worthy of our worship. Only God is worthy of our worship. In verse 6 it says, Splendor and majesty are before Him. You might also translate that as beauty and magnificence. God is beautiful, He is magnificent, He is splendorous, He is majestic, and He has strength and glory in his sanctuary. So what does this all, all mean? These are royal words. This is a royal description. He is the king. Not just any king, but the king of the universe. And it says in verse 4 that he is most worthy of our praise. Well, he's also worthy because he's the creator. In verse 5 it says... All the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So it's basically saying, just by virtue of the fact that He made everything, He's worthy of our worship. Have you ever looked at a sunset on Clearwater Beach or, or been to the Rocky Mountains and seen the, the 13,000 foot peaks? Been amazed by creation before? I think we all have seen something in creation that has amazed us, but what we need to understand is that stuff is minuscule. We talk about creation. You know, astronomers say that there are a hundred billion solar systems in our galaxy. 
I mean, I can't, even, I can't even fathom that. But they also say that there are probably somewhere between 100 billion and 200 billion galaxies in our universe. I mean, we really don't even know. How can we count that? But each one of them has a star. Each solar system has a star at its center. And Psalm 147 verse 4 says that God determines the number of the stars and gives to all of them their names. A hundred to two hundred billion galaxies. Maybe each of them has a hundred to two hundred billion solar systems. I'm bad at math, but it doesn't even matter. Even if you're good at math, you don't know how much that is. That is insane. He is incomprehensible. The fact that he would not just know that those stars are there, but he put them there. He spoke them into existence. He named all of them. How majestic is our God? Now, John Piper makes the point that if, if you think creation is awesome, creation is only meant to be a temple for God. It's only meant to draw our eyes up to something far greater. And that's what he says. He says, if creation has glory that stops our mouths, the glory of the one who conceived it and created it will put that in the shade. So the world, the universe, is meant to be about worship. It's meant to direct us up. It's meant to cause us to worship our majestic God. That's why the Westminster Confession of Faith, in, in the shorter catechism, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Come on, where is all my, my PCA peeps? Where are you at? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever, right? And that's what we're made for. We're made to glorify God and enjoy God. Now, this might be a little strange to hear because I think a lot of people, when we think about glorifying God, they think about just appeasing God, right? We think about, got to go to church, got to sing praises to Him, got to say our prayers, maybe we'll crack the Bible, and we got to do this, and it's all fear-based, right? It's like, um, we think of him like Zeus, that as long as we don't tick him off, we'll avoid being struck by lightning. That's kind of how we think of God, right? That we just kind of fear him in a negative way. And yes, the Bible says to fear God. Psalm 96.4 says that, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, so he is to be respected and honored. We are to be in awe of him. But unlike Zeus, we're also called to enjoy him. We're called to enjoy our creator God, this majestic king. So it is our highest aim in life. You want to know what the purpose of your life is? I'll tell you what the purpose of your life is. It's the same for every one of us. It is to praise and enjoy God. There is nothing else. If you have a different purpose, then I hope that what you hear this morning is that God is calling you to something greater to praise and to enjoy Him. There is nothing greater than that. We're called to, to come in here on Sunday mornings and to celebrate and to make a joyful noise to Him one day out of seven as a gathered people. That is absolutely what we're called to do. We're called to, to sing with all of our hearts, not just the worship team, but all of us as a congregation. We are called to sing out, to praise the name of the Lord our God, to 
praise His name forevermore. But we're also called to glorify Him just by enjoying Him, by being with Him. If you spend time each day with Him in the Word and in prayer, that is a way that we are called to enjoy Him. But even more than that, we're called to enjoy Him and glorify Him with every facet of our lives. With obedience. Most people think obedience, they hear that word and they think that's about, oh, i got to do this. So God, again, so He won't throw a lightning bolt at me. No. Obedience is the, is the sphere in which God has said, this is how you enjoy me. It's kind of like if, if my son, again, Isaac, is, is playing in the yard. And I say, Isaac, look at all these fun things to do in the yard. But what does he want to do? He wants to run out into the street. And I'm saying, no, do not run out into the street because I don't want you to get hit by a car. But look, here's all the amazing fun things that you get to do in this yard. I'm trying to set a boundary for him, and that's what God does for us. He's saying, here are all the amazing ways that you can enjoy me. Obey me, and you will enjoy me. Obey me because you get to. So we obey him with our our thoughts, our desires, our words, and our actions because we want to, but we also enjoy God with just the things that we do every day, with with our work, with our play, with with our art, with our music, with, with our food. You probably have heard of uh, the movie Chariots of Fire. You know, dun, 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 dun. That one. Eric Little, the guy that, that's a true story about him, an Olympic runner. He was a Christian, and he said that when I run, I feel God's pleasure. When I run, me, Morgan, I do not feel God's pleasure. I feel, I feel weak lungs and bad knees, but he felt God's pleasure. But he was saying, it's like I was made to run. It's like God, when he made Eric Little, said, I'm going to make this guy a runner. Not that he would worship running, but that he would be thankful for his, for his ability to run, that God designed him that way, and he would see that that was part of God's purpose for him, and then be thankful and delight in God. We glorify God when we delight in doing what he designed us to do and how he has called us to do it. Now you might come back at me and say, okay, well if that's true, then why are there so many people who do all those things, they do art and music and they run and all kinds of stuff, and they don't even believe in God? It's a great point. The difference is, again, thankfulness. We are called to to do those things to enjoy those activities by recognizing and being thankful for where they came from and who they came from. True enjoyment of a thing, a gift, an ability, an opportunity, is only truly enjoyment if we can say, thank you, God, for what you have given me. If we don't have that, then we really don't know how to enjoy it. So, we live lives, we, we maximize created things, we enjoy them best, we, we paint and, and sing and play sports and run the best when we recognize where those gifts came from. That's James 1.17. It says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. 
hearts of thankfulness. Thankfulness to the giver for the gifts. We run, we sing, we preach, we manage businesses, we sell products, we keep books best when we do those things out of thankfulness to God. So we have this magnificent creator who knows us better than we know us. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He is incomprehensibly awesome, and yet so many of us do not worship him. And I'm not even just talking about non-Christians. I'm saying even as Christians, every week, every day, we struggle to worship him. And the answer, you know the answer, it's because of sin. Because of sin, we praise the wrong things. Sin has caused us to have separation between us and God. It causes us to worship our gifts and our opportunities instead of worshiping God. It causes us to, causes us to forget to praise God, even to become hostile to God. This is the point of, of Romans 1, 22 and 23. It says, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So back in, in days of yore, they would actually make idols. They would make a statue out of wood or out of stone or even out of gold, and they would worship it. And it would be so ironic because they would have to like move it around and carry it and, and do stuff for it. And it's like, this thing can't do anything, but, but yet we're worshiping it. What? That doesn't even make sense. So that's why it says they exchanged... It actually calls them fools. They, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. They worshiped the wrong thing. Now, Paul, uh, if he looked at us today in the West, he would say, I don't see any statues, but I still see idols. I still see you worshiping the wrong things. I still see you worshiping things like wealth and power and control and equality and sex and popularity and our kids and our jobs and our sports I'm telling you what I am not worshiping college football this morning that's right that'll be the last thing I say about that but anything we praise in place of God is an idol and look we even have idols underneath our idols like we have idols that serve other idols it's, it's kind of crazy if you think about it Think about like Instagram. Somebody who worships the idol of Instagram and always has to post a selfie, the best looking selfie, is really serving the idol of pride, right? There's two idols there layered on top of each other. And then I would say the most common one that we all deal with is just the idol of self. We worship self. When things are good, when we succeed, when we're happy, when we're joyful, we, we tend to praise ourselves. We don't even think about God. We put ourselves on the throne that only God should be on. This is uh, the point of King Nebuchadnezzar's story in Daniel 4. We're going to come back to this a few times throughout the rest of the sermon. Daniel 4, verses 29 and 30, King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon says, Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. So, you, if you don't know who Nebuchadnezzar is, he was the emperor of Babylon. And if you know the story of Daniel, uh, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fiery furnace, and all that, he was the emperor of Babylon during that time. So, he, 
He went and conquered Jerusalem, and it was actually part of God's plan for Israel, for Judah, that they would be exiled out of Jerusalem, out of Judah, and over to Babylon. So, so Nebuchadnezzar was actually the, the tool that God used to accomplish that, and he built a great empire. Babylon was the, the empire in the world at the time. So this would have, been, would have been around, say, 600 B.C., somewhere in that area, 600 years before Jesus. And so he goes out one night on his royal palace roof. He's very impressed with himself. I mean, think about this. He would have probably been able to see the hanging gardens of Babylon from his palace roof. And this is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. That's a, that's a big deal. Um, it was also said that the walls of the city of Babylon were so thick that you could race two chariots side by side all the way around the city. That's impressive. So, so Nebuchadnezzar goes out and he's like, I mean, he's like channeling his inner Ron Burgundy. He's like, hey, everyone, come see how good I look. I mean, he is really, really thinks he's awesome. Do we do this? I mean, do we say, look what I built? I did this for me. I think we do that a lot. But we are only meant to use these types of words. I mean, think about it. He says, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. No, we're meant to use those words for God. We're meant to direct our praise for our successes towards God. But Nebuchadnezzar can't do that because he doesn't have a relationship with God. He doesn't know the gospel. He doesn't believe and trust God by faith. He's only living for himself. He's living for self-praise. He's worshiping himself, and that praise is misplaced, and it is misdirected. It's on the wrong thing. Now, there's another side to this when we worship self. What about when bad things happen, when we suffer? I want you to think about Job for a second. Job uh, was a godly man, and, and he, he suffered all this terrible stuff that none of it was his fault. And in uh, Job 2.9, his wife comes to him and says, Curse God and die. Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. She's angry. In Proverbs 19.3, it says, A person's own folly leads to their ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. So we suffer for multiple different reasons. Sometimes we suffer for no fault of our own. Sometimes we suffer because we did something foolish and we are reaping the consequences, but we all suffer. And here's the thing, without the gospel, when we suffer, we'll rage against God. It's like when we're doing fine, when things are good, we pretend God doesn't exist. But when things go bad, all of a sudden he exists and we use him as a cosmic punching bag. We're like, how dare you let this happen to me? My God would never fill in the blank. We say stuff like that. And it's a symptom, it's a different symptom, but the root cause is still self-worship. It's still idolatry. We're still looking at ourselves and trying to worship me. And the problem, guys, we're not designed to worship something that's, that's capable of failure. We're designed to worship the eternal, unchanging God. Every single one of us is made for that, to worship the eternal, unchanging, incomprehensible God. And when we praise ourselves, we're praising something that has 
has an expiration date. We're praising something that is changeable. We're praising something that fails every day. And so we are eternally disappointed. And we rage against the one who could actually satisfy our souls. But we rebel. We, we will praise anything else, anything other than God, unless we believe the gospel. The gospel is meant to pry our eyes away from ourself and fix it on Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus. But sometimes, in order for that to happen, we need a big interruption in our lives. Let's go back to Nebuchadnezzar real quick. In Daniel 4, verses 31 and 33, the next few verses of the story, it says, Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven, This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Nebuchadnezzar was like Howard Hughes, but out in the grass. One breath is all it took for Nebuchadnezzar to be on top of his palace, praising himself to out in the grass like a Chick-fil-A cow eating grass. I mean, this is bizarre. This is crazy. What is God doing? It's like God is saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you think you're a God. But what I want to show you is that you're actually closer to an animal in comparison to me. It's a scary thing. But the truth is that God is infinitely greater than us. And we are meant to recognize that and agree with that, and we're actually meant to reflect that with our entire lives. That's what praise is about. Praise is about showing the rest of the world who is really God. So we're, stint, we're, we're meant to spend our lives praising Him. But sometimes before we will do that, we have to be brought low. We have to be humbled. And I, I don't wish that upon myself or on anyone else, but sometimes that's what it takes to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto God and our need for Him and our need for Jesus. We can be so much like, imagine if you went to something like the Grand Canyon or the Sistine Chapel or something that's just absolutely mind-boggling, and, and you're there amidst that, and you're just walking around staring at your phone playing like Candy Crush or something, you know? Like, wouldn't you be mad if you saw somebody doing that? That's how we are, though, in, in God's world. And sometimes we need to get bumped so that we drop our phone and it breaks and we're like, oh, wow, look at what's here. Sometimes we need to be humbled because only the gospel can direct our praise back to God. That's our last point. Without the gospel, we are spiritually incapable of glorifying God. We can't do it. Romans 3.11 says that there is no one that seeks God. No one. Not on our own. Ephesians 2 says that we are spiritually dead in our, in our sins. So if we're spiritually dead, then we can't praise God. 
We need new hearts. That's the gospel. The good news is that in the gospel, God makes us alive in Jesus Christ. He removes our hearts of stone. This is what it says in Ezekiel 36. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will literally take out your old heart that cannot praise me, and I'll put a new one in there that can. So we'll be capable of crying out to God, of, of praising God, of recognizing that He alone is worthy of our praise, and we'll want to glorify our Creator. And this is actually what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. This is the end of his story. Uh, chapter 4, verse 37. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything He does is right, and all His ways are just. And those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. Isn't that amazing? He goes from praising himself to only praising God. This is the, the emperor of the greatest empire in the world. God is able to humble and change anyone. In his humbling experience, Nebuchadnezzar saw his need for God. He experienced it. He became a new creation. So do you struggle with praising God? Do I struggle with praising God? Absolutely, we all struggle with this. And sometimes there are things that happen in our lives that humble us, and, and they may seem harsh, or they may seem like, wow, I wouldn't want this, but maybe it's a mercy. Maybe it's a way that God is drawing us back to Himself. Maybe it's loving for Him to humble us. If that means it will get our eyes off of ourselves and on to God. I want to look at, uh, in closing here, Psalm 63, verses 1 through 5. This is King David. He says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be satisfied, fully satisfied, as with the richest foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Is that your experience of God? Does He satisfy your soul the way a delicious steak dinner from Burns Steakhouse would satisfy your stomach? That's what David's saying here. That's how much God satisfies his soul. Have you experienced that God's love is actually better than life? Than anything in this life? David glorifies and enjoys God because he knows God's love is better than life. He has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Often we don't understand God's love. We don't understand how much better it is than life until we come to the end of the line on trying to be satisfied by the things of this life until we come to the point where we say, I'm done. It doesn't work. Until we come to that point, we often will not know that God's love is better than life. I mean, do, do we really believe that the point of life is to have nice things and go on nice trips? Do we really believe that? Sometimes that's what our lives show. I mean, do we really believe that the point of life is to make ourselves comfortable and secure? Sometimes that's what it looks like. If you look at my life, sometimes that's what you probably would think that I praise. And if so, we've got to understand 
what David is saying here. David was in the desert here. He was fleeing from Saul. Saul was trying to kill him. And that's when David wrote this psalm. But in that desert, he had more joy and more praise for God than, than, than I ever do. And the difference is that all he had was God. All he needed was God because he knew that God's love is better than life. And look, he didn't even know the fullest extent of God's love yet. He was a thousand years before Jesus. A thousand years before Jesus and he had faith that God's love is better than life. He trusted that Messiah would come. He had faith in God that he would provide. He was saved by faith, but he still didn't know. He didn't know what was going to happen. And we know. We have the advantage of being able to look back and see what Jesus has done. We can see that, that Jesus exchanged his place in heaven for a place as a servant. Look, John 1.3 says that everything that was made was made through the words of Jesus Christ. The Creator went off the throne and came to, to earth as a man and took our place on the cross. He died. We live. We know the extent of God's love. We know that it is better than life. We can see it in His Word. We will not glorify God, though, until we believe that, until we trust that Jesus really can and does and will bring us more enjoyment than anything in this life. So Jesus is looking at each of us and saying, deny yourself. End your self-worship. Get your eyes off of yourself. Look up. See the infinite, unchangeable, majestic, and glorious King who is right now on His throne. And it says in Hebrews that He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This is the one who made us. He has made us for Him. He's made us for a life of glorifying Him and enjoying Him. 